Hey, it's Jonah Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best. So I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. Have you heard of the new polyamorous dating trend that's becoming popular with both older and younger generations? Well, find out what it's all about and if it's a good idea for you. We also look at how dancing can be healthy for your mental health and how an award-winning musician in Calgary is forced to live out of his car and why CAMH employees in a rural community are locked out of their office. And we continue to focus on the many cons and downsides of remote work and why it may sound good, but potentially bad for your career, social life, and mental health. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. You know, relationships are a big deal. Being in relationships is a big deal. You know, spending the time to build a relationship is a big deal. And spending the time, the energy, and the commitment in a relationship is a big deal. Now, I, you know, I can tell you there were times where I wasn't, I've been married before, and there were times in between marriages where I'd be dating, and there was actually a period of time where I was serial dating, as they say, like, you know, dating pretty much anyone I was interested in. And by the way, just so you're clear, my definition of dating might be different than yours, right? Might be different than yours. Because my appreciation, my idea of, you know, being in a relationship and your idea of being in a relationship may not be on the same page, right? So my idea of a relationship or my idea of dating, is, you know, back when I was dating, I kind of had this thing going where I had a friend and she was a friend with benefits and she was dating and I was dating, but we only had sex with each other. So pizza, you know, we get together, have pizza, watch a movie, uh, kibitz around a little bit, have uh, a, a lovely evening together. I'd go home, she'd go, she'd stay at her place, it was at her place. And then I would continue dating and she would continue dating until we found someone in our lives that we wanted to date, um, you know, monogamously and be in a relationship, a physical, intimate relationship. And for me, I could only be, for me, I'm only talking about me, could only be in a relationship with one person at a time where it was intimate. I could date lots of people and enjoy meeting and going out for drinks and walks and all that kind of stuff with lots of people, right? But when it came down to the, you know, the real nitty gritty, getting down to the serious stuff, I, I can only handle one at a time. That's, again, that's me. So again, send me some information about what you're grateful for, but jump in as well, because I want to hear from you. I want you to call me or text me. Tell me about a relationship where, or a time in your life where you're in more than one relationship or dating more than one person, and you liked it. Like, I liked dating different people because it was interesting, but I couldn't imagine being physical with more than one person because for me, that takes like a real thing. That takes time for me to get to that comfort zone. It takes time for me to be that, you know, that in tune with someone that I can get naked and be physical, to be blunt. I know we had a, we did have a qualifier in the beginning of the show that if you didn't want to hear, you know, difficult stuff or, you know, colorful stuff, you could turn it off. So I'm going to, you know, it is a sex conversation we're going to have right now because where I want to go is to talk to you about polyamory. Polyamory. Polyamory is where people are in relationships with more than one person. And there are a whole bunch of combinations 
And we're going to spend a couple of segments here talking about it because I need your help in understanding this. Because where I'm coming from, I can't imagine. I've been with the same girl now 37 years. Um, and she's amazing. She's everything I've ever wanted in a, in a friend, in a person, in a lover, and all of that stuff, right? But it's all of the energy I've got to be the best possible husband, partner, and friend that I can be with her. Like, I can't imagine having to split up the energy that I've got amongst with her and even another person. I don't know. Am I crazy? What do you think? 877-399-9898. John O's standing by too. He wants to know what the hell is going on. He and I are scratching our heads trying to figure out, holy smokes. Like, you know, so I want to talk about this. I want you to understand that this isn't something I've made up. This is like a thing. This polyamory thing is, is, is a thing. People are in it. Uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, over monogamous relationships. We're going to get to that for in a minute because uh, it doesn't sit right with me. But, uh, John, I'll play the clip and listen to what this lady says, this woman says, as she describes why she chooses to be in a polyamorous relationship. One of the biggest things I still choose to be poly, and it's something that I love and can like understand more like, I'm not going to fill all of your needs. Nobody is going to fill all of my needs. Like you're not my possession. You're not my property. I love you and I want you to be free. And the way that I can express that the most is to let you be who you are. But that doesn't mean it's easy. And that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that there's just like sex happening all the time everywhere <laughs> that we're open to whatever. Well, there you go. So the sex, there's not sex happening all the time. See, it would be easier for me to understand, right? It would be easier for me to understand if it was just about sex. Okay. So you have multiple partners, you have insatiable, you have an insatiable sex drive and whatever. Okay. So there, I, I can see that. I get my head around that. I understand it. But the emotional part, that for me is a deeper dive. I don't know what you think. That's a much deeper dive to be in a relationship with someone where you're sharing emotionally and spiritually and con connecting and physically and, and, and being, you know, and, and trusting and risking and all that kind of stuff with more than one person. And it's considered a dating habit. It's a dating trend. It's something that people are doing for the most part to try to spice up their relationships. I can tell you from firsthand, not firsthand experience, but working with people with patients that have tried to spice up their uh, physical relationships, their marriages in particular, their committed monogamous relationships by bringing somebody else into it. One situation comes to mind just recently where I was talking to somebody who was trying to deal with how to put his relationship back together after he and his wife decided that they're going to bring a third in to the relationship. Come back for break. I'm going to tell you exactly how that worked out. And we're going to talk some more about this whole concept of poly relationship, polyamorous relationship to different definitions, how it kind of comes to boat, comes about. And maybe you can help me understand a little better about how to make something like this work. Because I certainly don't have the mental, physical, or emotional energy to do more than I'm doing with the woman I love right now. And at the thought of cheating or having something else on the side, another family, another group of people, holy smokes, I get great anxiety just thinking about it. The relationship that I was talking about with a particular patient that called me to say that they, he and his wife had decided, I mean, we talked about it in therapy. I didn't think it was a good idea at the time. Uh, his wife was uh, very, uh, very interested in trying new things and combinations, you know, physical uh, relationships, sexual relationships with others in their group. Anyway, they decided that they were going to go to a swingers club 
That's where you can go with a partner and switch partners or bring a partner in or whatever, all kinds of combinations. And anyway, they did that. And then she connected with somebody else and they eventually came back to their home a couple of times. And within three months, the relationship was over because she was jealous. He was spending too much time with the other girl and he was jealous. He, she was spending too much time with the other girl. There was another female brought into the loop. Anyway, it didn't work out. I'm old school guy. I, I don't know how this stuff works. So help me out. Okay. Give a guy a break here. 877-399-9898. Try to help me figure this stuff out. So let's understand what a polyamorous relationship is. So poly is a word from, it's a Greek word. It means many and the Latin word amor, right? So many amor, so polyamorous, many individuals involves partners agreeing to engage in romantic or sexual relationships with other people with, of course, the knowledge and consent of everyone that's involved. There's no lying. There's no cheating. There's no deceiving. Eh, I'm not sure. There's got to be a little lying, a little deceiving. Maybe not. You're not exactly honest about how you feel about it. I don't know. I I, I don't want to be judgy here. That's not my job, right? But I find it difficult. And I keep going back to the relationships that I've been in over my life and how much time and energy it takes to do a good job in my world with just one person. So the concept of having multiple partners and trying to be good at it, being a good person, and having that not turn out to be, you know, a really horrific situation where something all of a sudden goes wrong because you're, there's a lot of jealousy now in the loop. Like, listen to this couple. This, they talk about how difficult it can be to deal with uh, the natural emotion, like jealousy and stuff, in a non-monogamous polyamorous relationship. Jono? So, Daniel, how do you deal with jealousy in the relationship when I'm out doinking some other dude? <laughs> Oh, man, it was hard. <laughs> Guys, we all deal with jealousy. All of us. All of us. It's it doesn't innate. matter whether you're a non-monogamous or polyamorous or monogamous. Well, there you go, right? Like, it's it's a combination of, of, I guess, what maybe works for you and what works for your partner. According to the Abacus data, and there's a poll that they did, the Abacus had a poll from 2022 that found that 25% of Canadians say they're open to the idea of a polyamorous relationship. If you're not sure what that is, and you're just tuning in. That's where you have a relationship with more than one person. So example, something called a triad, which is a polyamorous relationship between three people who are involved with one another, right? Is it okay to accept it? That, that monogamy is maybe not good for you. Or, you know, if one of you is in a monogamy, it feels like you should be in a monogamous relationship and you don't, is this better than cheating? At least bringing it forward. Does it make more sense to have this open conversation? I think so. I think if you're not feeling like the person you're with is enough, whatever enough means, I think it's important to talk about it. I think it's important to talk about it with great sensitivity. So remember, when you're talking about bringing somebody else into a relationship, it suggests that either we're looking for something to spice, spice up the relationship for whatever reason, and one or the other or two people that are in the relationship, one for sure, probably both at some point are going to have some subtle thoughts that, at least in my experience, talking to people about this kind of stuff, is that you start to feel that you're not enough. So there's a feeling of inadequacy, right? Which is all about lacking confidence and lacking self-esteem. So the whole concept of these polyamorous relationships are where you're supposed to be in it together with your partners. So something called a V like the letter V, is a polyamorous relationship between three people in which two are involved with one person but not with each other. Then there's something called a comp, a, a compare, um, a comp Persian relationship. 
C-O-M-P-E-R-C-S-I-O-N, compersion relationship. And it's the joy experience seeing a partner's joy in another relationship. So it's the opposite of jealousy. Then there's something called being in a quad. I know it's a lot to keep track of, right? All these labels for a relationship. Quad is a polyamorous relationship between four individuals. And one person might be involved with three, or they may be all involved with each other in combinations of, you know, all, who knows, right? Now, in a relationship with, with a single individual, one-on-one, the difficulties of trying to be there for the person, being understanding, being warm, being caring, being, um, you know, uh, being uh, trustworthy, being able to share and risk, hard to do with, you know, get down to being able to do it well properly with one person in a relationship it's not so it's not so easy when you start thinking about multi at least for me start thinking about multiple people that i have to care about and be connected to i mean i do it now with my children and my father and my brother like people in my life my family now you add the level of of physical emotional and romantic involvement to the whole thing it gets really tricky like, how do you make sure that one doesn't piss off the other? Like, someone in this tri- in this in this trio, or someone in the quad, or someone in the V, right? And in the in 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 that, if you have a nesting partner, that's really the person you're talking about. The, the nesting partner is the one you actually live with. So I, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it. I'd love to get your 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 thoughts. Eight seven seven three nine 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 eight nine eight. But can you imagine, right? Can you imagine? You're in a relationship. Your partner comes home and says, you know what, honey, I'm really thinking that uh, why don't we bring, you know, someone else into our relationship? Now, I don't know about the partner you have, but the partner and I have, she would instantly go, why? Why do you feel it necessary to bring somebody else into the relationship? Now, I can't imagine that this conversation just comes out of nowhere. I can't imagine that this conversation is just all of a sudden, hey, by the way, babe, Have you thought about being in a polyamorous relationship with, you know, some other people? And then someone in that relationship, one or the other, or both, looking at each other, trying to figure out, okay, why? It's a little odd. Now, you would think that people that are getting into a relationship that are open to polyamorous relationships would be open to a polyamorous relationship as they enter into their relationship. So perhaps you're entering into a relationship and it's built on that. Maybe that makes more sense. Again, I don't know how I could do it. It's got to be mentally, physically, and emotionally exhausting. And, you know, in the relationship, attending to one of one or another's personal needs, you know, and what happens if one person's more caring over the other? Well, you like them more. I mean, you see it with children, you know, multiple children in a family who feel that they have an, you know, an issue with one parent or another loving the other one more. Well, you can bet that that's going to happen. At some level, at some point, somewhere along your polyamorous trip journey here, you're bound to step on someone's toes. There's enough, certainly there's enough people with feet at the end of the bed that someone is going to get their toes kicked. Okay, I'm just standing up here kind of dancing my way through. I'll get down on it. Okay. So listen to me. Were you just tapping your toes? Come on, anybody who knows the song, you're tapping your toes. I could see Jono in the studio. He was tapping his toes. He's so young. He doesn't even remember the song, but he knows it enough to tap his toes. I was certainly, my feet were moving. My body was grooving. 
I was swaying from side to side, bouncing up and down. Guess what I was doing? I was working on my mental health. Can you imagine? Working on my mental health, my physical health, my cardiovascular, my cognitive response, my cognitive ability, my, my enhances my both psychological and cognitive health. 100%. There's a study. I'm not making this stuff up. I know for me, when I come and I'm in the car, I'm having kind of a rough day. I'm driving. I used to do a lot of jail visits and, and, and such and work in the prisons. And God, you know, a couple hours in, a, in an environment like that kind of makes it difficult to shake it away so easily, you know, or working in, in, in the clinics back in the day or picking people up off the street from, you know, doing recovery work and rescue work, you know, and just kind of a little, some kind of get to your guts a little bit. And every so often, and not every so often, pretty much every time. When I was free again, all alone, driving back home or to the next place I had to go, I was cranking my tunes. I still crank my tunes, especially in the summertime. I'm a bopper and a singer. I mean, I bop and I sing in the seat. You look at me and figure, oh, this guy's crazy. Oh, I am a little crazy for sure. Not in a psychological way or not in a diagnosed way, but yeah, a little crazy. Another conversation, another day. But bopping and dancing, moving and grooving, can you imagine? You're having a crappy day at work. Yeah, crappy day at work. You can hardly get out of the place. If you're fortunate enough to actually be going to work these days and getting a break from home, well, we're going to deal with that later too. Stick around. I'm getting back on my rampage about working from home. Anyway, we'll do that later. Stick around. But anyway, let's get back to this. The dancing and the, you know, and having a crappy time, you get in the car, you crank your favorite tunes and you're bopping and you're grooving and you're moving and you're singing. All of a sudden you feel better. Well, let me tell you something. You can dance your way to better mental health, according to Neuroscience News. Their structured dance programs are beneficial, sometimes even superior traditional to traditional physical activities and for enhancing one's psychological and cognitive health. They did a study, a big study was done, and it was a rate, participants from seven years of age to 85 years of age, and they compared the effects of different dance programs, different dance genres, on uh, things you know, uh, compared to things like walking, uh, other forms of exercise, weight training, and so on. Dance-related exercise, big help. Structured dance in interventions of at least six weeks can significantly improve someone's psychological and cognitive outcomes, especially if you have to do things like study and learn dance routines. Working on the studying of the dance steps. Forget about the fact that you're moving your butt and running you know, hips back and forth and tapping your toes and moving and grooving and having a really good time. But if you're actually learning how to dance and learning dance steps, it improves your cognitive, um, your cognitive behavior, your, co your cognitive uh, strength, your cognitive well health, if you will. Because the ability to remember those things is what cognitive uh, strength training is all about. You know, they're, they're, you have to work at training the muscles in your body, including your memory, including your cognitive re recall and such, right? Very important that we do things like, for example, my wife and I, we play Scrabble, uh, I read stuff. Um, you know, I do things that require me to remember how to put certain things together on a fairly regular basis. Or again, things like Scrabble, where you can remember, uh, have to remember you know, words and put them out and, and spread them out and spell them and so on. So we're finding that learning dance steps has an awful lot to do, the sequences, has a lot to do with helping someone who may have challenged cognition. And anything that involves partners or groups, like if you're dancing and you're not dancing, I'm like, listen, there's some of us that dance by ourselves. 
Sometimes I turn the music on in my uh, in my living room if there's no one home and kind of move and groove if I'm having a bit of a day. Kind of like the music anyway. I like dance music. I don't really dance very much anymore. My wife and I dance once in a while when we're allowed to, when we're when we can go someplace and get away with it. Another conversation, another time. But yeah, by the way, Orthodox Jewish people aren't supposed to be dancing together in front of other people. And, and anyway, a whole nother, whole nother conversation. So we don't get to dance a lot in public, but we dance sometimes at home. But the idea of being in a partnered group or being in a dance troupe or being with a bunch of other people improves your social interaction. So not only is it improving your cognition, improving your mental health, improving your physical health, you're also now improving your social interactions. And the whole artistic aspects, the artistry of the dance. You know, especially if you're into more exotic type of dancing, where there's a lot of hand movements and a lot of actual, you know, steps and such that you have to recall and certain kinds of really, you know, some beautiful, beautiful dances from around the world where there's a lot of flowing, flowing body movements and so on. Beautiful to watch. Hard to learn. You got to work at it. And the, the experts are suggesting that a structured dance program of at least six weeks is what will make a big difference in your life. And that they suggest that the outcomes that you'll see from structured exercise programs, structured dance programs. Listen, I know a lot of folks. I used to, back in the day when I would spend a lot of time in the gym, I worked out to music. I used to skip to music. I used to shadow box to music. I used to hit the heavy bag to music, the speed bag to music, do my weight training to music. Now I'm doing more stretching, more yoga-ish type stuff. So not really dance music kind of exercises. I don't know. What do you think? 877-399-9898. Appreciate hearing from you. Don't you find that dancing just makes you feel a little bit better? Kind of gets you in the groove, kind of gets you moving. So that body movement is really good for you. If you move your feet around like I'm doing right now, it's really good for you. If you remember actual steps, it's really good for you. And it's fun. It's like eating healthy food that tastes good. <laughs> I don't know what those are, but, you know, I, I, kale, for example, just on the, on the side. If you've ever taken kale, I don't know if anybody out there likes to eat kale. It's really good for you. It tastes crappy unless you do stuff to it. I, I, I bake it up and put salt on it and, and bake it up and eat it like chips. Like It's like, you know, it's dry stuff and it's crumbly and it tastes good and it's pretty good for me. Like anything else, you can't eat too much. So dancing is like kale for me, for my physical exercise. Music, actually is really the, 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 the lead to the dance, if you will. It's the music, really, that gets me going initially. And then moving my body to the music is just a secondary piece. So getting my head into the right frame of mind by getting tuned on and tuned into the music, then my body starts to respond to the music. And while I'm thinking about the steps I'm taking and the music I'm listening to, the words, the beat, guess what I'm not doing? I'm not listening to my mind, perhaps telling me things it shouldn't be at the time. I'm not caught up in my anxiety or depression or fear of, of, of things in my life because I'm distracted. Music and dancing, music and fitness, fitness in general, body movements in general are great distractions for upsetting mental health or times in your day when you're upset for whatever reason, angry, tired, lonely, hungry, all of those things. But exercise is critical. You hear me talk about it all the time, right? It's got to eat right, sleep right, and work out. Like anybody, physical, mental issues, whatever, you got to make sure that you're eating right, you're sleeping right, and you're working out. 
whatever you're able to do. If you're in a wheelchair, you can work out in your wheelchair. If you're able to move around, you can work out moving around. However you're able to do it, being physical is what it's about. And if you can add the music to the physicality, it just makes it so much, fun, so much, so much more fun. So what I'm suggesting to you is that these there are actual studies that have now proven that this stuff actually works. And if you actually work, if you actually dance three hours a week, three hours a week, and listen to music and kind of tap your feet, maybe more often than that, maybe that's something you do on the way home from work to just kind of wind down. Then I think you're going to find that including music in your life and adding some dance steps or physical movement along with the music is going to take away from a lot of the yucky stuff that you feel at the end of the day during the day. I know people. I, I, I coach folks, and I tell them when you're in the midst of a of a difficult workout or a difficult uh, performance, you know, and you're 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 in rehearsal, take some time away from rehearsal, take some time away from practice, go sit somewhere quietly, listen to some music. If you can find yourself a little corner to tap and move your feet, okay too. Great distraction. So we're going to get up. We're going to dance. We're going to move. We're going to listen to music. We're going to do it, hopefully, in a group. You're going to sign up. You're going to do that for me. You're going to sign up for some kind of class. You're going to meet a whole bunch of other people that like to listen to music and dance and such. Make some new friends. Get yourself physically and mentally fit. And off we go into the wild blue yonder. story that's kind of a good feeling story, but it's kind of sad that we have to have this conversation. You know, after a three-decade career, music career, uh, an incredible, exceptional guitar player, Oscar Lopez, you heard him playing in the song that we had on the way in, on the intro. He was one of the compadres. Um, he's now 70 years old, and he shared the stage with some huge, huge players over, over his career. And, you know, he was uh, nominated, I think, for seven Junos, uh, since 1995, he won two of them, and uh, just a very talented uh, guy. Just um, been around music forever. He came to Canada from Chile in 1979, started playing the guitar. Uh, he worked as a janitor, but you know he ended up deciding he could he could play um, he could play his music. He was actually seeking mental health treatment uh, at uh, Rocky View Hospital in Calgary, and he had a revelation while playing the guitar in his room that people were actually listening to him. And loved what they had, what he had to play. So as a result, he just continued to play and made a career of it. Well, he's been very up, very much upfront. Oscar has he's been very much upfront about his situation and how it kind of turned from being, you know, a pretty well-known guy with a pretty decent background and career to all of a sudden homeless and living in his car. Have a listen. Knew it was not going to last forever. Never knew they was going to get to this point. Everything that I'm taking right now and I'm solving, it's all good for me. It has made me humble. It has made me honest. This is uh, just a bump in the road, honey. <laughs> there you go, just a bump in the road. So here, imagine that your favorite musician, one of your favorite musicians, you, you, you turn around, and, and we've all heard it, right? We've heard it uh, from, about famous hockey players and famous athletes from various sports in Canada, famous uh, musicians and actors from various parts of, uh, of the world in North America, L.A. And, and New York, places like that. To, you know, we find out later on that, you know, for 20 years they've been living out of a, a hotel room, you know, paid for by friends. Or, you know, worse than that, living out of their car, or worse than that, living on a bench, or worse than that, living on a cardboard box with nowhere to go. People that at one point came from a position of, of 
some form of fame and notoriety, maybe not fortune. So one has to ask themselves a question. In the country that we live in, how does someone that's that great fall from greatness without anybody there to catch them? That's the question I have for you, my friends. Don't you think we need to do a better job at catching people? You know, perhaps I'm sure you would all recognize that a musician with that many Juno Award nominations and that many performances and touring for that long had paid in for years and years and years and years into various unions, musicians' unions, actors' unions, performer unions in Canada. And I think it's a North American thing, probably a worldwide thing, but certainly in North America, I'm, I'm very aware of that. I, I coach some folks that are performers and recognize what dues they have to pay and organizations and unions they belong to. But the question then becomes the same as I have for any professional sport is when someone falls from greatness for whatever reason or falls onto some bad luck for whatever reason. In this case, it was a mental health issue and, and, and some financial issues that Oscar found himself, Oscar Lopez found himself uh, caught up in, you know, and he found himself suddenly, you know, living uh, out of his car. Wasn't quite sure, you know, he kind of knew how he got there. And he used, you know, he, he used to, you know, he used to rent a place to live. He lived like all the rest of us. But anyway, he's, whatever money he's made over the years, whatever's led him to being where he is right now, and we really don't have a complete understanding of how he got to where he got to, and we haven't had a chance to interview him. So I really can't opine on how he got to where he is, but certainly he's talking about it. And now he's talking to, you know, he's getting donations from different people. There's, you know, revenue coming from, from strangers to help him out, help him get back on his feet. But my question becomes, more than anything, my question becomes, where are the union dues? Where are the organizations? Where are the uh, performers' guilds and such? Where are they in helping those that fall from grace? Can't they do a better job? It, it has to make sense for me. When we enjoy someone's talent for so long and we and they and they rise to some level of notoriety, how do they fall by themselves? I don't think that happens. I don't think people fall by themselves. I've been in situations where I where I've worked with people who you would all know their names, and I've, you know, I don't necessarily in, in my coaching practice, I deal with people who are at, you know, at the better and greater parts of their life and achieving all kinds of things. But in my therapy practice, I'm dealing with people who are struggling. That's my expertise is in crisis management and, and high crisis situations, especially with younger people. I don't do that so much anymore. But that's kind of what I was into. So what I'm saying is it's, it's not hard for me to see people fall from grace and you can see them slip over time. Why are we just not doing a better job in this country watching people slip and catching them before they hit the ground? Whether it's a famous actor or actress or a musician or young person or athlete or politician or your favorite neighbor around the corner, or your school teacher who you finally run into by accident. When you, I, know, I, I know a situation where, I, I, you know, a number of years ago, five or six years ago, I was walking in downtown Toronto and stumbled onto somebody who I remembered as one of my teachers in middle school, right? So I'm not really sure how people get to where they get to, but I'm really sure that we have an obligation, responsibility, and a commitment in society to help one another. And I'm really talking about that tonight. You know, Oscar made a big commitment to 
the world. He's been struggling with depression for decades, said that he found some treatment in playing his music. He's had mental health issues for years, trying to overcome them. I can't tell you how many remarkably talented people are out there, my friends, that have that struggle, that have a hard time just getting through day by day. But you look at their artwork, look at, look at, listen to their music, read their poetry, watch them act, watch them perform, watch them play a sport. And then when they stand away from those, come away from those platforms, those podiums, they have a hard time just living in their own skin like so many of us. You don't need to be famous to be uncomfortable. You don't need to be famous to end up lonely. You don't need to be famous to end up on the street. But where we can make a difference, my friends, is in those that are around us, those people that we know in our lives, those folks that we can just give a little hand up to, a little leg up, a little, you know, not a hand out so much as a hand up. Sometimes just treating people with dignity, actually, most of the time, just treating people with dignity is, makes all the difference in the world. Helping somebody out, but while you're helping them out, making them feel good about it, as opposed to giving them charity. It's nice to give. It's really nice to give. But it's nice to give when someone that receives it feels good on the receiving side. So I listen, I, I, any bit of help that we can give one another is good help. But I'm just telling you, don't, don't think just because someone's at a position of greatness at one point in their life. We heard so many stories of, of tremendously talented people end up taking their lives, end up, uh, you know, terrible things happening to them because they find themselves down on their luck. And when you're when you're up there at some point and you got to fall from up to all that way down, it's sometimes that's worse than just never being that far up to begin with. Talking about public enemy, well, not the public enemy, but I think the government in this case is the enemy. We're talking about people not at their best for sure when we listen to this next. Uh, topic that we're going to talk about but please continue to send me uh things that you're grateful for i appreciate everyone that's texted please continue to text in 877-399-9898 just send me one thing that you're grateful for one thing so that my boss knows that you're listening number one and then i know that you're grateful and it gives me some energy and some strength and everyone else that's out there too really do appreciate it. and if you want to call in uh john is there too when it's an appropriate conversation to have conversation i want to have with you right now is can you imagine that you require that, you know, you're getting services, mental health services uh, from a government-sponsored program. You show up for your for your program, you show up for your, your, your sessions, your clinic, your group, whatever, and it's locked. Place is locked. So it's one thing if you're a patient, right? It's one thing if you're someone that's, you know, requiring those services and showing up and, okay, you can figure maybe something happened, someone got sick, whatever. There's an issue. There's a, some kind of outbreak, so they close the place down. But can you imagine if you work there? Yeah, imagine if you work there. CAMH, Canadian Association of Mental Health, can you imagine? They, they have their centers in Cochrane, Iroquois Falls, Matheson, Kirkland Lake, and New Liskard have all had their workers locked out of their respective centers. It's ridiculous. I, 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 can't, I can't imagine in this day and age how anyone in their right mind, money, no money, how anyone in their right mind can come to terms with this. These are high area needs, big. These are areas that have, you know, high demand for these kinds of services. And the Canadian Mental Health Association, Cochrane Tamiskaming uh, branch, made the announcement on Monday. And it has something to do with not being able to reach some 
some original arrangement with the union. So it's union and government and it's a bunch of crap. And in the meantime, 147 employees that, that are in this part of this uh, OPSU union, local six through 31, um, they're all part of this union situation and 147 of them are locked out. Now, we don't have enough mental health people out there that are working, that are allowed in the office. If everyone worked, we still are you know, down by at least half of the number of people we need, maybe more. It probably doubled the number of mental health care workers and peer support workers that are out there. So rather than beef it up, like the government keeps talking about. Again, I'm not anti-government. I'm not, poli- I'm not a politician. And I don't want to talk about politics. I want to talk about stupid decisions. And this is a vastly stupid decision. So the large the lockout's largely due to failed negotiations surrounding pension and long-term disability payments. Basically trying to force the workers by, by having to pay an increase out of their pay of 6.4% of their gross wages for programs that not everybody can afford, not everybody wants to. So it's not even over a wage necessarily. It's not even over whether there's enough funding to keep the place open. It's the, arg- the argument, the closeout, the reason that people are locked out and hundreds of people not, are not going to get the therapy. Remember, 147 therapists, 147 support people, workers, part of the Canadian Mental Health Association. Those are the number of workers. Each one of those workers has at least... 50, 75 people in their roster this day in, in this day and age where there's no money and lack of help. So you're talking about 100 people with 100 people or 100 people with 50 people. Do the math. That's a lot of people that aren't getting care. In a facility that's funded, in a facility that's built and open, in a facility that's ready to rumble with a staff and, and an infrastructure and a list of patients not only in the programs, but lined up to get into programs. And now they find that the place is shuttered because of some negotiation. I don't know. Am I the only one that thinks this is ludicrous? It's absolutely ludicrous in this day and age to shut down anything that provides support for mental health and addiction or support in any way for mental health and to shut it down and then to talk out of the other side of your mouth being the government, talking out of the other side of their mouth about how they're stepping up all these things to to help people that are homeless and have mental health issues and so on. The majority of the folks that are going to government-supported programs in most of these these programs, you know, are uh, many of these are folks that are somewhat down on their luck as well as having mental health issues, many of whom have, you know, uh, are transient or may not have fixed addresses. They may, in fact, be homeless at some level. And now they don't have care because it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, it's the famous bad boy. If you ever, if you live in Ontario, there's a, it was a chain of, of retail stores called bad boy furniture. And one of their slogans was, you know, you could, you, nobody could beat, beat the price. Nobody. So the question is, who's thinking about this? Who's thinking, who's sitting in some government office thinking about how to, make a bigger mess or thinking about how to help people who need the help. Nobody, there's nobody there because no one in their right mind, no organization in their right mind would shutter facilities that provide services to people in communities that are desperately in need of these services, all communities, by the way, but in particular, since we're talking about them, 
These are communities that, that serve, you know, people from First Nations. These are people that serve, you know, folks that are in hardworking, you know, blue-collar communities and, and, and hardworking folks. Decent communities with decent, you know, loving loving families and, and, and churches and schools and such like that. It, just imagine, imagine if, you know, you suddenly show up to, to your doctor's appointment and the, the building is closed because your doctor's locked out for whatever reason and you can't get the help that you need. Try to find another doctor in this day and age in any part of Canada. So I think what the story is here, this, this doesn't make anything. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me here that you lock people out to negotiate some kind of an, of some kind of financial arrangement. It just, I just can't comprehend how you can take services away from folks. You can only imagine. I mean, they've been bargaining at the table, trying to get this, this stuff worked out for some time. So the contract didn't get negotiated, and then they've made an announcement that they're going to shutter the facilities. And in the meantime, the, 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 the emergency numbers are going to be lacking workers. Uh, there's there's mental health and addiction workers in a 24-hour residential facility um, that, are, that are going to be a part of that lockout. There's, it just goes on and on and on. I just don't understand how people can make, how government can make these kinds of decisions and not understand what the repercussions are. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. I, you know, if you can help me understand this, I'd love to hear from you. I've got some text messages here from, from some folks that are, that are uh, chiming in on it, right? Somebody says here, a, a, a politician making a stupid decision. no. That doesn't happen. What are you talking about, Yona? I guess this is a sarcastic message from my friend Derek. I think you've been listening to too many conspiracy theories. I, no, I don't think so, Derek. I think this is a pretty shit, pretty, I almost said the wrong word, pretty crappy situation. <laughs> he caught me. Didn't get all the way out of my mouth. <laughs> but that's why we have the disclaimer, because sometimes I say the wrong thing. But this is ridiculous. Like, it's not even, I, I don't even know how to, I, I don't, there's no, I, I can't provide therapy around this. I can't provide some counseling or, or, or anything around this that I can talk to you about and, and explain how this is okay and how this makes any sense. In this day and age, in this country, shutting people down from services that are so desperately needed just makes no sense at all. Anyway, so much for that. Hopefully it's going to make a difference if anybody's listening. Get on get on with it up there. Just get yourselves together. My friends at Canadian Association of Mental Health, if they're listening. Come on, you guys can do better. You know how to do better. I am driven to talk about the concept of working from home, not being healthy for one's mental health, increases isolation, reduces social interaction, reduces the ability for someone to be motivated to actually get up, get dressed, get clean, get ready for work. The concept of work, right? It's 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 an issue. It's a, it's a real it's a real issue. We understand that there's you know there's benefits, right? There's benefits. The benefits are increases flexibility, it's better work life balance, but not really. Like it's really not a better work life balance if you think about it. You know, there's something for me. I, listen, I don't know how you feel about it. Eight seven seven three nine 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 eight nine eight. You can. Text me or call me. Tell me what you're grateful for because that's open all night. Or in particular, talk to me about this work from home thing. Are you in the midst of it? Are you work? Are you working from home right now? Or are you going to the office, going back to the office or back to the place of business, back to the store? I guess if you're in retail, 
kind of hard to work from home. You know, if you're in a factory, kind of hard to work from home. If you want to sell cars, kind of difficult to work from home. You want to sell houses, kind of hard to work from home. So not all industries can provide a work from home strategy. So, yeah, maybe for some people, they think it's a better work for life balance. I'm not really sure what that's about. I, I find it much easier to have separation between work and life in my home life. Actually, you know, I have a studio in my home. I'm fortunate that I'm able to have a studio in my home where I do video work all day long with patients and clients and, uh, you know, I lecture and do all kinds of things and speak um, mostly virtually. I do some, some stuff in, in, in person now as well. But for me, when I leave my studio, I close my door. And I keep my door closed until I'm ready to go back to work. And when I get ready to go back to work, I'm ready to go back to work. I'm dressed for work. My hair is combed. I brush my teeth. I use deodorant. I put on clean underwear and socks. And I'm ready to rumble. So we have a guest with me tonight. And her name is Dr. Terry Griffith. And she works at the Keith Beatty Chair. She is the Keith Beatty Chair in Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Simon Fraser University, Beatty School of Business. She's going to join me right here in a second. And we're going to continue to talk about this work from home, uh, work-life balance thing, you know, it reduces your commute times and so on. Some people say it improves productivity. I don't see it. Access to a larger work pool. If you're an employer, you have access to more people because you can get people that, you know, I know people that are hiring folks they've never seen. Oh, Dr. Terry Griffith, how you doing? Very good, thank you. Good. I am so frustrated by this work from home thing. I don't know what size you're going to come up on it. I don't know if we're going to be best friends or or friendly enemies. I don't know or or, or friendly opposed to one another. But talk to me about this thing. Like from your perspective, you're you're well educated. You're involved in this kind of thinking and, and research and understanding this kind of stuff as a therapist, as a coach, and as a therapist. I stand back and go, this is really not a good thing. Am I on the right track or the wrong track? What do you think? I'm going to say it's not as new as we've all been thinking about it. I mean, we've been doing research and watching people work in this way electronically since, I don't know, 1982. You know, certainly the pandemic put us into a whole new perspective on it. But for some people, for some organizations, it can work. And, you know, to your point, you know, humans evolved working face to face, but now we have all these other tools, all these other supports that give us options. And for some folks and some jobs, it can really be a very effective way of working. So I, I get the productivity side and I get the, I get the, you know, and this is the, this is the argument I hear from, from all experts that I talk to um, and, and respect, including you. Um, but the, the, where I'm coming from is that sounds great. It's good for some people. It's good for some businesses, but I'm working with companies now, some, some, some companies I provide, major companies I provide coaching to with, you know, a thousand employees or more, uh, some less, some more. And, and there it, it's, there's a lot of people calling in sick. There's a lot lot of people that are that are taking days off for mental mental illness there's a lot of folks trying to make you know work from their from the closet from the car from the from the garage because they don't necessarily have an office to go to and i'm finding from my side again i guess because i'm a therapist and a coach and i see it more maybe because it's clin clinical and it comes to me perhaps but doctor i i just i don't understand how generally speaking as as a way of life 
we can think that this is a good thing because I feel, I find that people just aren't motivated to get up and do their job. What am I missing here? Well, you know, we've been talking about it recently, my colleagues and I, is the full human experience. And so if I take a step back and I say, for someone who works because they want to be socially engaged with people during the day, or for someone who works because they want to be able to dive into that deep focus and be able to be their best self in a very analytical way, or someone who's managing you know, family and health and all sorts of other things, that is just such a rich perspective that says, why would we ever think that we should work in one single way? And even for a single person, why should I work the same way every day? I mean, I don't. Um, I suspect you don't. I, I, I hear that. L- listen to what listen to what a young person says about how much they hate remote work. Hey, have a listen with me here, Jono. One of the shifts we've seen in the business world is this move to remote working, and I hate it. And I hate it for a variety of reasons because I feel like there's very few institutions in in our in my life where I have a chance to meaningfully connect with with people. Dating has become screens. Socializing has become screens, and the office. The institution of the office in my life was one of the places, especially as a younger man, where I got to meet pretty much 90% of my current best friends and also partners. And And I really worry about um, sitting behind a, a Zoom uh, f- doing my work um, for, for, the re- for the next 10 years. Um, do, you, do you not find that it's more difficult for people to kind of put their work hat on when they don't actually set themselves up to, to travel to work or to actually physically go to a different place? Do you, do you not see in your work that this is a, an issue for folks? Well, I'm always going to split things into a social and a technical and an organizational set of dimensions. You know, I'm a Perfect. professor. We have to break stuff into, <laughs> into different little boxes. And On the social side, I mean, you're highlighting some really important points. You have to know what works for you. On the social side, some people simply need that barrier. We know that, you know, commuting to work can be helpful. It can can be terrible, but it can also be helpful. And even more importantly, that commute home, when you get to kind of wind down before you walk into the house and meet your family, that can be great. On the other hand, it can have such high costs that it just isn't, isn't worth it. So that's the social side. And then on the, the more, I don't know, I guess the technical side of it is, do I have the technology that makes me be effective at work when I'm not uh, in an uh, office? And maybe I don't. It's a privilege to have the kind of, you know, internet connection, you know, video mm-hmm, cameras, mm-hmm. quiet space. And then for my organization, is the organization tuned up to be either a very much you've got to have FaceTime, button seat time, or are they really fully engaged with what it takes to have remote workers be their best? And so you can just have a huge spectrum of situations that are going to make this either better or worse. And the the thing to really highlight, and that's what I'm hearing you say, is you've got to know for yourself mm-hmm. what is going to be effective. 
Yeah, and you know what, Doc? I don't know where you work, but you know, I get the. I have the privilege, thankfully, to for the most part, uh, to be choose to be virtual or, or in person for most of what I do. Uh, but frankly, you know, I couldn't see as many patients or as many clients if I it was back in the old days of either seeing them in an office or going from place to place to place as I can, going from screen to screen to screen. So, from my perspective, it's much it's much simpler. But you know, I've had to work at the discipline to be able to get my butt in the chair and not want to watch another, you know, another episode of friends or, you know, make something to eat in the kitchen or go play with my dog. Um, so, you know, and I work really hard at that and it's part of my, my OCD and my ADD and anxiety issues. I, I work at it, but what you're saying, and, and what I think you and I are saying the same thing. I think for some people, it's a really good thing. For some people, it may not be a really good thing. You've got to know what works for you, but the way that the, the way that industry seems to be playing out doctor is that, it's not really going to be a choice for a lot of folks. So now what? Now you got to find yourself a job that gives you the office opportunity because you're really not doing well from home and you're awfully anxious and you're feeling like you're you're, you're missing work and you're not you're not getting that that FaceTime with your boss like you used to when you used to bump into them in the coffee room and say, hey, you know, by the way, how am I doing? Like you, you miss that because you don't have that that physical. Like if you're not doing well. And your place of business doesn't provide you with the option to come back to work because they're finding it cheaper to close out offices versus keep them open. Like, what the hell do you do? Yeah, I mean, you're you're hitting on something that my colleagues and I are doing our best to educate people about. And we're mm. educating the individual mm. worker saying, you've got to know that these are choices you're making, either in the job you're taking or in the way you're going to do the job that you have. And we're trying to educate the, the managers, the leaders, the organizational founders to say, how is your work, the work that you need to get done in your company, how does that get done the best? And does it get done the best with you know traditional employees? Does it get done the best with contractors? I mean, so many choices we have, but the thing we haven't been taught is how to effectively make those decisions. Nobody's telling a high school kid who's about to leap into either a college situation, which has just as many choices about in-person or online, or right. going straight into the workforce. Nobody's educating them about how to make these decisions for themselves and how to figure out what's gonna work for them. And then even once you're in the workplace, it's the rare organization that says, hey, let us help you learn mm. to design your own work. You know, that's, I, I, that's, a, that's a, a trouble. Exactly. So let me ask you, you're a professor, you're you know, a researcher, a teacher, um, and I'm sure you know, do lots of exciting things. I can hear it in your voice. Um, do you find that you're as impactful? For, so for example, if you're giving a, 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 you're giving a lecture, for example, do you find that that lecture is as well received and your students do as well receiving that information when they're not eyeballing you across the room and you're relying on them to actually be paying attention on the screen and not on their phones and not eating sandwiches and, you know, dressed from the waist up only. And like, you know, like, how do you, how's it working for you? Forget the research and everything. How's it been working out for you? It It's just as messed up for me as it is for anybody else. And I have, <laughs> okay, and I have to keep saying, I have to keep saying to folks is that, is the goal here that they see that I'm smart and I can like propose things to them and that I get the big check mark or did they learn the most? 
And learning the most really doesn't have to be tied to me, you know, my name, my Mm -hmm. face. Mm -hmm. But in the old way, we talk about it as the sage on the stage. The sage on the stage, for sure, I want them face to face. I want them up close and personal. I want to be able to do things with them, interact. But if my goal isn't for me to come away having been judged as smart and effective, but if my goal is to send them away having learned a new set of skills, then it it goes up in the air again. So I can motivate people probably more effectively face-to-face. I can do that motivation piece. But if it's deep skills that I need them to practice and practice and practice, and if you give me, you know, people who will help me design online simulations, then I expect I can get them to learn that hardcore set of skills better through simulation than they ever could have just listening to me. So, so you and I, excuse me, you and I are on the same page. I think there's a, there's a culmination or or a hybrid of technology and in-person activity. And I think, for example, uh, hypothetically, if you were going to work uh, three days a week in person and two days a week in a hybrid format, if you choose to, or you could come to the office if you choose to, I think there's, it's not all things fit for all people. And I think there's a lot of people that are freaking out. I, I see a bunch, a bunch of people, frankly, that are freaking out because they just don't have the discipline or the separation in their life to actually be at their best when they get up in the morning and, and, and they try to pretend that they're actually going to work, which is really just a kitchen table. So they wipe off, uh, they wipe off breakfast and all of a sudden now they're at work and they're having a hard time staying focused and, and doing a great job and, and feeling then insecure about the process. What do we tell those folks? You know, that they have to start making choices. And, uh, you know, for better, for worse, people don't have kind of lifetime jobs anymore. And so the next time you're going to change jobs, really think hard about how you're going to do that work and how it's going to fit with the rest of your life. And really think about, you know, I'm going to say that phrase again, the whole human experience that you're going to, you know, is it going to give you the, the salary that you need? Is it going to give you the flexibility that you need? Some people need more. Some people need less. Is it going to give you the social interactions that you want? Is it going to give you the career support that you're looking for and having all that on the table as you're making your decision about which jobs do I take and which jobs do I turn down and on the organizational side being aware that we have to help people they haven't come out of school they might have come out of school learning how to use a a spreadsheet but they did not come out of school on how to design their work in the best way for them well, I got to tell you, you're a pleasure to talk to, and I hope I can reach out to you more often because I'm I'm not giving up on this bandwagon. I'm trying to blow the whistle, get people to pay attention to this isn't this isn't really great for everybody. So um, I hope you'll come back on, uh, Dr. Griffith, um, and thank you so much for being here with me this morning, this or this evening, wherever you are. Appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Thank you.